1: Hey, everybody, welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday show with Mike Guardia. Mike is the internationally acclaimed and award-winning author and historian of a gazillion books. He is joining us today. I know, I'm just like, I can't count With more on the way. Yeah, with more on the way. Yeah, I think he's got three ready. Crazy. Uh, um, But his latest book is out. It is called Skybreak, the 58th Fighter Squadron in Desert Storm. You can get it now. Just go to MikeGuardia.com, go to Amazon. And uh, before we bring him on, we just got to give a big congratulations to him because he was recently named author of the year by the Military Writers Society of America. Plus, his book, Tomcat Fury, just received the Silver Medal Award, uh, Book Award for this year's ceremony. So, uh, Mike, you're kicking back. How are you doing? Yeah. Welcome back.
2: Hey, Lisa. Hey, Nancy. Mm-hmm. It is great to see you both again. And as always, it's great to be on the show.
1: Hey, this is cool. I mean, that's going to be a big deal. When you think about military writers society, that's like the, you know, how much bigger can you get in regards to your field of writing military history?
2: Right. And I was honored even to be considered for the award. It was quite a surprise to me, but a very pleasant one.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, how many books? I mean, it's like Mm. you can write a lot of books, which you do. You're very busy and But, like, you put your heart and soul in these books Mm. and getting the facts, getting this, like this one, Skybreak, uh, Nancy and I love it because you're really telling the story of the people. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something for, you know, if you're not in the military and in the military family unit, on the outside, we see so many numbers on TV of what's going on. So many in this in Afghanistan, so many that, that you kind of lose touch of the actual person out there fighting. So I really appreciate Skybreak, but... Mm. That's what I think is so important about your books. You can have a gazillion books, but if they're not good, you got a gazillion what, you know? But your books are good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's well deserved. Right. Well, is thank my you. point. <laughs> yeah. Skybreak. So this came off of Wings of Fury. And I remember interviewing, we interviewed you when we were in 29 Palms on Wings of Fury, I think we were. Right. I think we were. That's right. Yeah. Last year, spring, beginning of COVID.
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, the, so this is all about the F-14 that got you onto the stories of the people flying them.
2: Right, pretty much. So um, I think it really it really started with me just wanting to write about the F-14 and really the fascination that I had with that plane. And, you know, I, I realized as I was finishing up the F-14 book, I was like, gosh, you know, I really feel compelled to take it forward and turn it into a whole fighter jet series because I don't think that there has been a comprehensive volume of each one of the uh, fighter jets combat histories. And as Hmm. I was finishing up the, as I was finishing up the book on the F-15, I said to myself, you know, I am, uh, I'm just astounded by what our American F-15 pilots were able to accomplish in Desert Storm. And it was, it was in a sense, a little awkward for me. I mean, being that I'm an army guy, you know, writing about all these aviation titles, but uh, you know, the, the, the names that stood out to me all belong to the 58th Fighter Squadron. And I said, wow, you know, uh, for as monumental uh, of an event as Desert Storm was and how it still resonates within the, uh, within the political discourse of the Middle East, I'm surprised that more hasn't been written about it. And not only that, I'm surprised that despite everything that the, everything that the 58th accomplished, that there has never been a book that has been written about what they've done and how critical it was, because here you had all of these American pilots, and I think it was upwards of 95% of the pilots who deployed with that squadron had zero combat experience. You know, the average age of an American fighter pilot in in, uh, the Gulf War was only about 27, and they were going up against the Iraqi Mm -hmm. Air Force, which on paper looked to be a pretty formidable fighting force. I mean, these guys hmm. had eight years of combat experience from the Iran-Iraq war, and they were flying the latest and greatest in what was then Soviet technology. You know, they had the MiG-29, they had the, uh, they had the Sukhoi Su-24, all of these planes that our pilots had been preparing to fight against for years. And just in one engagement after another, I mean, the, these F-15 pilots were blowing these Iraqis out of the sky. And uh, I mean, just like, what an incredible testament to how well our forces are trained and how well they performed. And that's when the bug that's that's really when the bug bit me at that point. It's like, I got to get the story. on paper. I got to.
1: And it's F-15s. I said F-14s. I know, you know, I'm learning all these aircrafts (laughs) here, but um, it's interesting, too, about the squadron's history, because this dates way back when. Right. So this goes back Mm -hmm. to even Vietnam, Korea, um, just how. they've they've been just amazing from the get-go but then here they are with the f-15s getting out there one thing you Mm -hmm. talk about in the book is it it wasn't only the skill that they had the the right plane the right skill the determination and obviously Mm -hmm. team right teamwork right but it was also what the ground crew was doing in regards to maintenance it's like i look at it as almost like nascar like you know they're driving (laughs) around they're Mm all over it's like get your wheels done get the pick through yeah. go like these, i look at it that Very good way good analysis yeah. yeah wow so this was like 98% up and running like that fast
2: it was it was and it wow. was it was by every single measure just an incredible achievement because you know even in peacetime if you have a fighter squadron that has a 98% operational readiness rate many people consider that to be an act of God. I mean, you never saw those mm. numbers even during the peacetime Air Force. So wow. the fact that they were able to accomplish that with such a high operational tempo while they were deployed to a combat theater is really just nothing short of amazing. And it really, and what I really wanted to accomplish with the book was not only telling the story of the air war and the valor of the pilots in the air, but also to give the reader a uh, an overview of just how hard these ground crews work and how technically proficient they were and how, in order to have an effective fighter jet, you really need to have an effective ground crew because, you know, without the right maintenance technicians on it, without the people who know the plane inside and out, that plane will not move an inch and, you know, it really cannot accomplish its mission. You know, I found out uh, in the course of interviewing all these pilots and all these veterans that, you know, in the Air Force, the mentality is, that the planes do not belong to the pilots the planes belong to the maintenance crews and they loan them to the pilots and oh, wow. it is it is very well understood that when mm. a pilot straps into that uh, to the seat of his fighter jet you know the it's the crew chief that's telling him okay you bring my plane back safe
1: and sound to me don't break it wow wow so this this is just i'm gonna bring this back to the music so charlie watts right the drummer Mm. he just passed away a rolling stone very famous Mm. amazing drummer so apparently uh mick jagger called him up drunk one night in the hotel they were staying at wherever they were on tour and he's like where's my drummer and so charlie watts the gentleman who didn't do all that crazy while drinking drugs hangs up Puts on his shaves, takes a shower, shaves, put on a suit, goes up to the room of Mick Jagger, knocks on the door. Mick Jagger opened the door and he punched Mick Jagger in the face. He goes, "You're <laughs> my singer, because <laughs> there is no band without a bass player and a drummer. The they are the foundation, are. right? So that's yes. what the, the ground crew, yes. what they are. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on, uh, you also dedicate the book to one who has uh, recently passed as well. Um, so I want to talk about him, mm-hmm. but I also just want to back up a little bit to operation desert storm because this was in mm-hmm. like i was in school when this was going on you know mm-hmm. and it almost was like a drop in the hat like it's like a it's like boom this is happening now so when you think right. about how you know prolific and amazing these you know pilots and ground crew were you know the 58th mm-hmm. squadron how fast you know it just feels that way how fast did it just happen it's like all of a sudden bing we're fighting
2: right yeah, and it it was, it was incredible in the sense that it ended almost as quickly as it started. I mean, I am just old enough to remember when Desert Storm kicked off. I was in grade school at the time, but uh, mm. it was a very clear and very distinctive memory for me. And I think for a lot of the school children at that time, that puts me in the eldest cohort of the millennials. You know, it was very clearly explained to us, OK, kids, this is what a war is and mm-hmm. this is what a war looked like you have the bad guys over here and you have the good guys. And here's what Saddam Hussein, this you know, this mean person who invaded this tiny little country uh, called Kuwait. And when it was explained to us in those terms, you know, it was very, uh, I think it, it was very easy for us to internalize all these images. And for as young as we were at the time, it was the first re- real major conflict that happened in our lifetime. I mean, we were too young for Vietnam. And we were certainly not alive, you know, when Korea was happening, World War II. So this was our first introduction to what armed conflict was and what it looked like. And, you know, it was, I really think it was incredible in the sense that we uh, we knew we were going up against someone who at least on paper looked like he could be a very formidable foe. And, you know, just how quickly we won showed not only the resolve of the coalition, but just how much we had progressed as a fighting force from Vietnam, uh, because it was a, it was, um, it was a very, uh, it was a very real concern at the time amongst a lot of people. I found out that, uh, this was going to turn into another Vietnam. That mm-hmm. We no longer had the political will. We no longer had the fortitude for another high intensity conflict. And Saddam Hussein himself was even counting on that to a large extent. He was saying, okay, well, I've seen all of the newsreel footage. I've seen all the tapes of what happened in Vietnam. I guarantee you that if the Americans come over here to liberate Kuwait after they suffer a few thousand casualties, they're going to wave the white flag and they're going to be ready to sue for peace on our terms. But uh, you know, for it to end as quickly and as violently as it did, and uh, with such uh, an overwhelming victory, showed that not only were we a uh, not only were we a professional fighting force, but we were one that uh, was not going to be counted out on account of the events that happened in Vietnam.
1: You're prepared. I, I yeah. think the determination to not have another Vietnam is, has got a lot to do with it. I think the guys right. and gals that were fighting were totally 100% in it and determined not to have another Vietnam. And right. the thing that people back here stateside, because it was so fast, Mm-hmm. really didn't even get what was going on. Mm-hmm. I don't think they got it until after the fact. You know, even though it was on the news a lot, you know, it was like, where's Kuwait anyhow? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? because really, it, it was so fast that, um, I don't know, you know, I, I can't really even think of knowing someone that talked about it or, or served, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. In our circle of friends or acquaintances? Well, we were in South Africa when this happened. And I was in high school. Yeah. And I remember we were talking. I mean, everybody knew who, you know, Saddam Hussein was. Everyone knew. Mm -hmm. And I think he liked that, didn't he? (laughs) Like, you know, those like Hitler's, they want to be famous. It's just like, you know, we all knew that. But at the same time. South Africa was dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff going on, you know, right. and so Maybe a lot of my friends, of you know, as soon as they left high school would either go to college or mm. um, military so they, I had friends who were fighting actual battles that were happening <laughs> in your neighborhood mm. at that point, yeah. you know, things yeah. were, you know, there were riots, there were all those things there was, you know, stuff going up on the Angola you know, the angle, angle yeah, all the and border. All there was all of that. So we were kind of in that was happening. And it wasn't that far from us. If you think about mm-hmm. the Catholic continent of Africa, you know, it's yeah. at the top, but um, so it was a big deal. But we also didn't have the news like, you know, you were talking about in your book about being a kid, you know, t- couple and, you know, all the, the mm-hmm. journalists, you know, the news guys would sit up there and really, at that point, not be the talking heads we have now, uh, kind of, this is what's going on. We had very little of that. We had, what, three hours of TV, four, maybe five a night, and you'd split up by by language. So we were behind on TV. Uh, so it was a very, you know, we didn't have the Internet. You're waiting for a newspaper. It's like, uh-huh. so we knew stuff was going down, but it wasn't as Clear for us, as I think here in America, until we got Mm -hmm. over here, and then definitely, way later, you know, in life, uh, we lived right outside Fort Eglin, and so that's uh, Eglin Airport. We were just there in Eglin Airport. Well, I don't know what happens everywhere we drive. Somehow, I want to turn around or oh, let's go down there, and I end up on a military base. Yeah, she keeps doing that. I don't know. <laughs> they just like I don't know. I want to go. I was like, military. might sent me here. No, <laughs> but Eglin. what yeah. So Eglin yeah. was Eglin like always their base, home base, or
2: yeah, yeah, pretty much.
1: Wow, mm-hmm. wow. So all the way back in like Vietnam days, like it's always been there.
2: Right. Wow. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, and as a matter of fact, the fifty eighth Fighter Squadron, they actually they uh, they actually got their start in World War II, and you know they were flying a lot of what were the prominent planes back then you know they flew uh, they they uh, they flew p40s they flew p47s they served not only in the mediterranean theater but also served in um, also served in the china burma india theater oh, uh, you know wow. fighting uh, fighting both sides of the axis powers as they say and uh, you know in every major conflict they had they they played a role in some form or fashion when you fast forward to vietnam uh, they were among the uh, first squadrons to receive the new f4 phantom and even though they deployed later in that conflict, it was around uh, 71, 72, where they saw the critical mass of their action in that conflict. And they ended up downing two North Vietnamese MiGs in the skies over Southeast Asia, while they were flying missions out of Thailand, no less.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. It, you mentioned that, um, that some of the pilots thought that the weaponization of, in the aircraft was super complicated. So Mm -hmm. I started like, I know when you, when you've driven for a long time, you know, most of driving becomes kind of second nature, right? You know, you don't have to look for, oh, where are the brakes and (laughs) where's the hand signal? You don't look the, your hand just goes there. Do you get like that in a plane that you can hit a button that needs to be hit without even looking? Or do you always, do you have to look how, what's it like?
2: Well, um, I don't know if it ever really got to that level of ease for any of the pilots. But they did tell me that the more they trained and the more hours they spent in the cockpit, the more comfortable they got. Um, Mm. You know, flying a plane just based on everything that they've told me uh, is a super complex process. And uh, even flight school, even basic flight training for them was a uh, was a chore. And there were things that they had to keep practicing and things that they had to keep getting good at. So I think, that, uh, I think that just given the complexity of fighter operations themselves, mm-hmm. it, it gets very close to a point of second nature, but it's uh, something, that, uh, something that they keep having to maintain their proficiency on. Because I think, mm-hmm. uh, I think the biggest thing that I got from uh, the pilots when I spoke to them and you know, talked to them a little bit about their training and learned what goes into maintaining a proficient fighter pilot is that uh, airmanship is a perishable skill. <laughs> Mm. And uh, that if you don't have and and that if you don't have so many flight hours and you don't have so many hours in the simulator, uh, you will really start to lose your edge. And Ah. I think I think that carries over uh, to a large extent to um, the to the commercial aviation uh, careers that a lot of the uh, a lot of these pilots have. And I think it's kind of funny, um, you know, and. I use the term funny in probably the broadest sense, you know, just kind of like a humorous irony uh, that a good number of the men who served in the 58th fighter squadron today, I think at least, I think at least a dozen of them are flying for Southwest airlines now.
1: Wow. Oh, wow! Yeah. wow.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: that's It's interesting. We have a friend <laughs> wow. who um, flies mm. and it's, he's flown internationally. He's flown even, you know, China. And he's like, right. do you, you hear about all these, airline like the airports you're like Mm. I like what's the worst place to land you know he tells you all these crazy stories but he Mm -hmm. you know the I I don't know if he's still with Virgin now but he's also going towards the space program I'm like dude really you're gonna go from flying people to flying people to like you know with the the moon (laughs) the galactic and everything (laughs) and he's like why not you know it's like it's another destination you know because part of why he flies is so he can just travel you know just jump a flight wherever he wants but His amount of work that because he's really gone up, 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 up the ranks, Um, Mm -hmm. the simulator. It's like it's the amount of testing that he's had to Mm -hmm. do and keep doing and studying is Mm -hmm. intense. And he always says, oh, when people like go have a bad day, he's like a pilot is not allowed to have a bad day. You are so aware. And it's really Mm -hmm. interesting the training they have, especially after 9-11, about, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, if you think you're not profiling people and you think that's rude, get over it. You are profiling everyone that you see getting on that plane. And it's not just him. It's the crew. They're all so safety aware. And and it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. freaky when you do start talking about all of that. But it's right. you can't be politically correct on it uh-huh. because uh, an attack Thanks. is an attack. An attack is not politically right. correct. So right. he's like, you bet we look at every single person and we're checking you out from head to toe. And it's you know beyond the security. It's like as they're coming on the plane, they are ready for everything and anything at any time. And it's it's pretty amazing when you think about flying. You know, we have all those conversations, and I'll see like a Boeing go up in the sky, and I'm like, "Holy Mm -hmm. cow, that is some crazy stuff!" You know, think about it. How does it stay up there? You know, yeah, the power (laughs) flight. We were just in North Carolina, where the where the Wright brothers, you know, launched their Mm -hmm. first planes, and you're going this is crazy. Like who yeah. thought of this? And then now we're going to take it up into the sky and get better and use this yeah. in, in fights. But these guys you're talking about, these are like air like kills. They call them, it's like you're hunting. Right. So it's like, right. When, when you're talking about a kill, cause here we go, now you're going to know that I'm not in the military. So basically are you shooting the other guy like completely down? Like pretty
2: much. Yeah. But just to go back. Um, okay. bit, very briefly to what, A lot of these guys are doing in their commercial aviation careers now um they say that even flying an airliner they have to have so many simulation hours and they have to have so many flight hours because they say you know even even flying something like an airbus or a 707 that uh you know you need to uh you need to stay proficient on it otherwise otherwise it becomes a perishable skill but as far as the uh, as far as the air kills go uh, yeah, you know, when whenever that fighter uh, pilot straps himself to uh, to the in, to the inside of a cockpit, um, his uh, his only mission at that point is to find an enemy plane and to uh, and to blow it out of the sky.
1: Wow! So it is like you know video games, well, but it's real, like pretty, pretty boom. Much. I mean, I don't see that you have a choice if that's what you're there to do. You can't just what fly next to him and say, hey, pull hey move over. over. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> right. work that way. Yeah, it's <laughs> I like boom. Now, so you know, and and then, I mean who- that, How do you you keep track of that? I mean, that when you think about, okay, here we are going to combat and it's Mm -hmm. up in the sky and you're just boom. I mean, you're talking about these guys did back to back. Like it was just annihilate everybody in Mm -hmm. the sky. And you got to think about like, wow, you know, especially with the Soviet, you know, they had all that technology. I mean, that was a big threat for many years and we're still there in the Soviets, but going out there and just annihilating like as they did so many back-to-back kills who's keeping track is it is the technology doing it are there people watching like going okay that was three over here that they got and they land they crashed over here or
2: actually it's a little bit of both um hmm. so so whenever a pilot makes an air-to-air kill um, his own flight formation is keeping track of it and then also, several miles away from where that flight formation is, you have this—you uh, have this big airplane that's called an AWACS, and uh, the AWACS stands for Airborne uh, er- 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 Early Warning and Control System. And essentially, what that is is that is uh, you know, among the many personnel that you have on that plane is uh, is is a team of uh, people, and the head of them is called an Air Battle Manager. And one of the many jobs that the AWACS crews do. Is they keep track of uh, all air to air kills that are happening within a uh, particular span of airspace. And aside from the AWACS keeping track of that, uh, very, very often you'll have uh, some ground control stations who have air intelligence officers, air liaison officers assigned to them, and they'll be keeping uh, track of the radio traffic. They'll also be taking in reports either from the pilots or the AWACS. So uh, you have a, so for every kill that's made, you're always going to have a, a few eyes on it. If not uh, if not pure line of sight, then people are going to be uh, keeping track of it either through radar or hmm. you know, any of the uh, various sophisticated equipment pieces that they have on board.
1: Yeah, I always thought radar, they could, maybe I watch too much of Star Trek, but <laughs> where they could just say already know yeah. where it is, like right on the map already, boom, that's it's right there on F-15 and uh, this over there and that latitude, that longitude, and there it is. <laughs> How long are they in the sky for? Do you think like once they go up there, like how long does like fuel last and, and can you like nail someone? Like, could you take down three planes in a row, like one pilot?
2: Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Um, Yeah. The, uh, the, the mission sets uh, throughout desert storm on average, they went anywhere from about six to eight hours. And Mm. uh, throughout, uh, throughout, uh, throughout each one of those mission cycles, uh, you, you would have some aerial refuels because aside from the AWACS that are in the air, you also have these, uh, you also have these aerial refuelers that are doing uh, some racetrack patterns in the sky. And uh, you know, they'll rendezvous with, with a particular flight of F-15s, they'll, they'll go mm-hmm. through the refuel process and uh, both the uh, AWACS and the aerial tankers, they'll also have their own fighter escorts since you don't have any defensive armaments on any of those high value uh, assets you know they'll need uh, they'll need some protection because the last thing you want is for an AWACS or a tanker to get blown away by an enemy fighter. Wow! And uh, yeah, so ah. it is it is very and it, it's also very uh, it's very possible for a uh, for one single plane uh, to take out as many as uh, three or four enemy fighters since when every uh, since when every fighter jet goes aloft they uh, you know they have a complement they have a full complement of uh, missiles usually uh, heat seeking radar guided missiles. Ah. And, uh, mm. you know, several hundred rounds of, uh, of, of gun ammunition.
1: Wow. So do they do they always fly in formation? Mm-hmm. Or will a pilot go up all on its own, oh, just kind of stealth and try to find Sniper. other enemy? Yeah, sniper-like.
2: <laughs> right. Well, mm. yeah. Um, I think by their very nature, fighter jets are pack animals. And mm. uh, you will never see a fighter jet go up alone. They, mm. at, uh at, at the very least they will always go up in pairs you know you usually have a uh, you usually have a, a primary and a wingman and then sometimes you'll have what's called a four ship formation where, where you have where, where you have two section leads and sometimes you have an eight ship formation but uh yeah they always go they always go up in uh, in packs wow.
1: okay so that's where they get their their nicknames you call was it caller signs like what Caller what call what is voice. call, call signs call okay. So yeah. it's it's like, you know that's fun. I know. See, like we still want to get our C B radio so we can go, rubber ducky, we're coming. <laughs> 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 Move over Lisa's driving. But yeah, you know, no but way. I was just thinking this because <laughs> you know, like they're going up there in six to eight hour shifts. Think about when you're driving six to eight hours. By eight mm-hmm. hours, you're done. Mm-hmm. And you know, to
0: me when you drive, it's I'm like Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second?
1: always watch it, it you're focused you know what i mean it's like that amount of i've got it's a lot tense. of practice i'm defensive drive i'm a defensive driver basically and you should be uh i was gonna say a combative driver like all right move over trek that doesn't work in a rav4 but <laughs> with, with them up there that amount of focus and intensity that has got to be pure exhaustion and adrenalizing is. too right the it adrenaline is. is you're pumped like you have to have that adrenaline to have the courage and you know to move forward and I think that's also that pack part so so that's used for when they're talking to each other like I'll take him on the left or whatever you know when through their speaking their call sign their call sign
2: right yeah so a pilot will have an individual call sign and also depending on what what also, depending on what mission he's on, he, he will also have a secondary call sign that's actually part of the formation. Uh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give you uh, give you, for instance, um, you know, one of the uh, first flight formations that went aloft that day on the first day of the air war, it was a formation of F-15s, and the code name that it had was SIPO. So the leader of the Sitco flight, you know, he could have a call sign like Sitco 2.6, and you know, he would he would refer to himself as SIPCO 2.6. If he was talking to the AWACS and then he would also use the SIPGO call sign. If he was talking to his wingman, he'd be like, Hey, SIPGO 2 eight, you're too close. You know, you need to move over uh, the, the individual call sign that a, uh, that a pilot has. And this might be different from unit to unit. I mean, I can't speak for all the air units out there, but uh, from what I've heard is that it's usually used in an informal setting, like after a mission is done and they're, and they're headed back. And one wingman is talking to another, he might say, you know, hey, Sly, or hey, Cluso, or, you know, hey, uh, yeah, I'm having this issue here. Can you look at my wing? And they're also they're also usually used amongst each other once they're on the ground. And it's kind of funny because in a sense, that call sign, you know, that they use amongst themselves uh, that gets used very often in in place of their own real names, you know, uh, all throughout Desert Storm. You know, once the pilots were on the ground and, you know, they were eating in the mess hall or they were just in their rooms or whatever, they would refer to themselves as their call signs. It'd be like, hey, Sly, hey, Cluso, hey, Nips, what are you doing? Mm. And, uh, you know, it got to a point where they even had trouble remembering their own first names. You know, it's like, hey, I roomed mm. with a guy for six months and I know him by his call sign. But for the life of me, I had I, I actually can't remember his first name. What's his first name again?
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. And yeah. I'd say, ah. okay,
2: yeah, his first name is Chuck. It'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right, Chuck. I've I just called him Sly for years. And even when these guys ah. get together at the reunions, they're still on a first name basis, only with their call signs.
1: That's funny. Fun. Yeah.
2: That's funny. Yeah. It's like your speed yeah. dial.
1: So let's, yeah. let's, you dedicated the book to Chief. And, I did. yeah, I did. And, and you know, and, and your daughters, as always, you know. So of tell course. us about Chief uh, because he was, okay. he was really one of the ground crew, right? He was, you he know, was. a mechanic a me- okay. and from Puerto Rico. And I think that's, that's important right. that we highlight that because we forget that our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters out there are part of the United States, not a that's state, right. but they have been fighting in wars for our country for a long time.
2: They sure have. They sure have. So Mm -hmm. Chief Master Sergeant Jose Matos, and he he was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Uh, Here was an incredible man. I mean, if it was any guy in the world who was meant to be an aircraft mechanic, it was this guy. Um, So, you know, he he grew up in Puerto Rico, which, as as I'm sure many viewers know, is a U.S. Commonwealth. So everybody born in Puerto Rico is automatically a U.S. citizen, Uh, Except in the case of except in the case of Chief Matos, uh, he grew up speaking almost exclusively Spanish. You know, by the time he was 18, 19, Spanish was his primary language, and he knew a few conversational words and phrases in English only. But he was fascinated by the Air Force. And, and, and I will never forget this. He, he told me this in our interview. He said, the thing that made him want to join the Air Force, he saw a he saw an, an old copy of Life magazine. And it had, uh, it had this uh, expansive picture on the cover of B-52. And it was highlighting how this B-52 had circumnavigated the entire world in wow. like, only about two and a half days. And he's mm-hmm. like, I have to do that. So he went to, uh, he went to Ramey Air Force Base, which I, I think is, I don't know if it's the only Air Force Base on Puerto Rico, but it, it, if it's not the only one, then it, it's uh, definitely one of the few. And he, he enlisted in the Air Force there. But he said his problem throughout basic training was his English. He said, I could hardly uh-huh. speak any English. I actually had to, you know, basic training for him basically became a, uh, a Johnny on the spot ESL course. And he had a few other fellow recruits who could translate for him. And uh, so, you know, he, he joins right at the height of Vietnam. He joins in the late 60s. Uh, he becomes an aircraft mechanic. He actually serves in Vietnam as an aircraft mechanic. You know, he serves at, uh, you know, he serves at the air bases there in South Vietnam. And he said, the one thing that stands out in my mind, Mike, was that even though they said the war was winding down at this point, it's like 1971, 1972, we were still getting almost daily rocket attacks from the NVA and Viet Cong. Wow. And huh. uh, he, said, he said, that's the big thing that stands out for me. But uh, he said, I knew I really wanted to make a career of this because I loved working with the fighter jets. I loved, uh, I loved being in charge of all, the, of all the technical aspects of the fighter jet. I could have gotten out and I probably could have taken a, a very comfortable ground job with like Pan Am or Eastern or Midway or any other, any, any other of those legacy airlines that were around back then. But uh, I really wanted to stay in and learn everything I could about these fighter jets. And he was in one of the very first classes to get a transition course to the F-15 when it came online. And he said, Mike, that was such a beautiful airplane. And he said, mm. one, of the things that, uh, one of the things that will always stick with me was how easy it was to change the tires on the F-15. He said, <laughs> all it took was just a few strokes to change a tire on the F-15. And he, he told me this, I'll never forget it. He said, it was so much easier than changing tires on the F-4. And he said, Mike, changing tires on the F-4 was a son of a bitch. <laughs> 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 it, was a, it was such a long and laborious process. I hated it.
1: Wow. The huh. F-15, and so, yeah, I I love that you're telling his story, and yeah. you mm-hmm. know, and you know, now that he's passed on,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's like it, you managed to capture that. You know, you've right. got to feel. You know, are you going to do more of this? Like getting out. I know you do extensive research, but this seems more close. I mean, it's this is modern history. You know, it's right. not way back mm-hmm. when I know our show is way back when and History Magazine way back when, but it ain't that way back when, you know, um, even mm-hmm. though they say 80s music is now classic. rock. <laughs>
2: I don't buy that. I don't buy that. The 80s and the 90s,
1: just stop it. All right. Like it's not classic rock. Not classic rock. It is the 60s. The 60s remain the classic rock. And the 50s. After that, just stop it. Okay. A little bit of the 50s, but mostly the 60s. But but yeah, for (laughs) you know contacting these pilots. I mean, this had to be like, how did you had phoning people and Try, right. it, and you've got a lot right. of dead ends too, trying to find them because you, you need to call them by their caller Their calls. Call <laughs> <sign. laughs> yeah, right. maybe that's it. Yeah, well,
2: it it, uh, it it was actually a pretty streamlined process. You know, I found that the majority of the pilots whom I contacted, they were all more than willing to speak with me. Uh, oh, they were all incredibly cool. friendly, and I think for a lot of them, really um, being able to share their stories and also also being able to share it with a fellow veteran, I think in a lot of ways is therapeutic. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I and as a matter of fact, I think that was one of the things that Chief Matos really took to heart was that he he felt he felt like he was contributing to uh, contributing to the legacy of the squadron. He said, "I'm um, um, he, he said, you know, I'm so glad that I'm able to get this story out there and that you know I'm able to share all of my memories of my time in Desert Storm." And you know, when I interviewed him, I mean, we went through about four different interviews. Uh, I had no idea at the time that he was suffering from some health problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I didn't find out until a few months later that he had been suffering from a rare form of cancer, which ultimately oh. took his life while the book was still yeah. in pre-production. Um, but you know, the broad sweeping theme that I got from every one of the veterans that I interviewed was that for them. Being able to tell their story was not only therapeutic for them, but you know, it also it also gave them, I think, an intense feeling of gratification to know that their story was going to be out there, and that future pilots and even future veterans, whether they're pilots or not, would be able to take something uh, away from the story. And uh, I I am just incredibly honored that uh, I got to be uh, that I I got to be in a position where I could get their story down on paper.
1: I think it's also important because I know you look at work with Hal Moore, um, you know, and it just it's grown and grown from there. All the generals and uh, commanders that you have interviewed and and researched and written about telling their stories. But I think when it's something so still fresh for all of us, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it it doesn't feel like everything the Middle East and everything—it doesn't feel like it's going away anytime mm-hmm. soon. You know, it, it just feel—I feel, I feel yep. like we're still in it. You know what I mean? Um, right. The Afghanistan thing is just a—that's a whole wow. That's that's a right. whole other show. <laughs> you know, I don't—I don't yeah. want don't to be one of the talking heads on that, but um, it's not over really. At the end of the day, you know, I think there's going to be there's going to be it. It's never really over honestly, I don't think. And I think that, like you're saying, it's something now for those in the service now. Because it's, it's something tangible. It's not like, okay, I'm reading about someone in Vietnam, I'm going to take lessons of leadership lessons of, you know, there's general lessons, but if it's something so young, it's tangible for right now, if that makes sense you know I, I think it would make a really good tv series and i, I you know especially the way you, you've shown the personalities mm-hmm. of the men i think that um mm. it, it I, you know i really always say this but um i think history the way it's presented in a lot of schools at least when i was in school um it was pretty boring and i think these kind of books and especially if they made money, you know people watch mash i know that's a comedy but it still taught you a lot, and I think that this would make could be one of those series, not necessarily a comedy at all, but um, to remind people what's really going on. Like mm. it's easy to say, "Oh, uh, my cousin went off to war," and oh, well, you know, great job, thanks for being of service to the con- country, things like that that are said. But does person really think about it? Do they really get it? Mm-hmm. What's going on when somebody's flying a plane and in a dogfight, you know, with, a, with a, a person in the other plane really wants to kill you? And so I think hmm. that these kind of books should be in schools mm-hmm. so that people would really learn about history and take it personally. And that I, I think this would make a great TV series. I think Mike could have his own channel at this point with all his books <laughs> yeah you this know, is he true could. You. he could have his own channel really yeah, <laughs> yeah. military mike, mike yeah. and hey, military PM mike <laughs> i know you could have your own channel with you know and then you could do yeah. all the show you could actually take us around mm. you know an, an f-15 and show us what you know come on it'd be great you get on yeah. it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Keep going mike well yeah but it's what you're doing is really i think beneficial like nancy says for you know we're not military people, you know, and so look how much we're learning and that we can connect with mm-hmm. your books. I think that speaks volumes. I really do. Right. Uh, and I know that you've got a huge following of veterans and those serving now uh, who really appreciate it too. So keep going, dude. This is awesome. Are you going to do more like this? Were you oh, interview? Sure.
2: Awesome. oh yeah. I, yeah, I am. Uh, I am at no shortage of books to be writing. So yeah.
1: What's next? Tell everybody what's next. I have got a list. You got three immediately, right? Three.
2: Yes. Yes, I do. I have three books that are, that are, that are actually currently on the horizon and, and let's see, the first one is actually going to be coming out in November. And that is a book called danger forward. Mm. And that is the biography on general Paul Gorman. Cool. And then after that, I have a book called the combat diaries which is hopefully going to be coming out towards the December timeframe. We're hoping it's going to be um, uh, for sale wow. in time for Christmas, but the combat diaries is a uh, collection of veteran stories from world war II. And oh, wow. going cool. into the 2022 season, I have a book coming out called red bandit. And that is a combat history of the 29. And then another project that I have in the works that uh, I'm hoping to uh, finish up within the next year, is a biography on a very interesting gentleman whose name is Marty Romano, and uh, and uh, Marty Romano name uh, probably doesn't mean um, anything to anyone outside the state of Minnesota, but he is he is actually a local veteran uh, who is just mm-hmm. an incredible man and he's accomplished so much in his life. Um, really one of the unsung heroes. Here's a uh, here's a man who enlisted um, who who actually enlisted in the Navy. Um, in in the uh, in the prime of World War Two, and he ended up he ended up becoming a PT boat commander. You know, hmm. We all know the story of JFK and PT 109. Well, Marty Romano was the skipper of PT 305, and wow. uh, and uh, his his um his area of operations was in the Mediterranean theater. And as a PT boat captain, he was he was ferrying the British commandos back and forth. Uh, to the shores of uh, to the shores of southern France when the Allies invaded southern France in August of 1944, and then after the war he came back home and decided that he was going to use his GI Bill benefits to get a civil engineering degree, and pretty much every major piece of infrastructure here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota can be attributed to to uh, Marty Romano. Uh, if you wow. go down, if you go uh, if you go downtown to mm-hmm. Minneapolis, there's the 11th Street Bridge. Of the most prominent bridges here in the cities he was the one who designed it he also designed the uh, he also designed the 494 tunnel which is this big uh four-lane tunnel that goes underneath the city uh wow. the highway goes through it and also the uh, also the bridge that stretches from the u.s side to the canadian side of lake superior that prominent bridge up there on the great wow. Lakes that was too.
1: well we'll wow. have to come see you because we have yeah. a whole series on bridges
2: all right great <laughs> so
1: yeah. to do something on that that's cool huh. that's really really cool and so have you met him
2: i have i have marty is still alive today cool. he's 97 years old and uh yeah i've, wow. I've done uh, I, 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 oh my god he is just sharp as a tack uh mm. he's 97 and i swear this guy is more limber than most 50 year olds i've met
1: wow <laughs> wow a, yeah, yeah,
2: that's but, amazing uh, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's just an incredible man and uh, I really can't wait to get a story out on paper.
1: Oh, that's excellent. You know, I, going cool. back to Skybreak, I have to say what I really enjoyed is you gave an overview of what what your, your introduction of the book really set you up for what you're mm-hmm. going to read and how mm-hmm. you introduced each of the men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you went, okay, now here's the missions like, and yeah. brought them into the scene. Mm-hmm. I think that's where, you Nancy, you were talking about the, yeah. the movie thing. I was just thinking yeah. that about how you really have that way of letting people know, okay, this is where I'm going to take you (laughs) as a writer, Mm. right? This is where I'm going to take you. And you introduce everyone, you get connected with the individual that you're showcasing, and then you put Mm. them right in the scene, which is really uh, amazing to do. How are you doing that? Like when Mm. you're interviewing everyone, you know, and and this uh, Mr. Romano, you're, you're interviewing them, getting stories. Are you finding commonalities? I, I mean, do you already know? Like, okay, I'm going to ask him about this point, this point, because you're saying like you spoke with uh, Chief what four times? Mm-hmm. So sure did. you're you're really getting in depth with everyone. Mm. See, so do you kind of keep like a chart? Like, <laughs> tell us your Go writing ahead. secrets, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay.
2: <laughs> okay. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, what wh- what I do before I interview all these veterans is I say to myself, okay, I want to know exactly where this person came from. I wanna know what events happened in their life that brought them to, to uh, this particular event that I'm writing about. So what I do is I structure all interviews and for every veteran that I interview, it's usually gonna be a series of about five to six different interviews that we do. And each one of them mm-hmm. is tiered. So in the first interview, I'll say, okay, I'll have a list of maybe you know 10 or 15 conversational questions. And it'll be everything, okay, well, tell me where you're from, tell me a little bit of how you grew up, what things that got you interested in the military, uh, what were some of the defining formative experiences that you can remember, or it, anything that you're comfortable sharing. And then from there, I say, okay, well, now that we've established the background, then in interview two, I say, okay, so from these experiences that you had growing up, what was it that ultimately led you to the military? And tell me, uh, tell me, about, uh, tell me a little bit about your experiences and it's within the course of those interviews, those first two interviews, that you start to see some commonalities and you start to see things that made the person who they were and what was, it that, what was it that formed their outlook on life and their outlook on the military to make them act the way they did in these particular situations that I'm writing about. So then for interviews, you know, three, four, and five or three, four, five, and six, I'll focus on a particular thematic element that dovetails into uh, part of the book that I've outlined. Like at this particular point, when you guys were like deploying to this theater, what was going through your mind? Uh, yeah. you know, what conversations mm. did you have? Was there anything that stands out? Like, you know, words you may have said to your family before mm. you left or whatnot. And what I do is I, I use that and I w- will let the veterans expand on as much as they want. And, you know, I'll say, you know, okay, well, you know, you told me this and Hey, that's great because, you know, I was talking to this other guy over here and he's remembering it the exact same way. And he also had this perspective on it. You know, can you tell me a little bit about that? And then that, that really broadens the conversation and, uh, you know, helps, Mm. helps, helps helps me weave all of these, uh, all of these personal narratives into a broad overarching picture of what all these men were accomplishing and what were the things that were making them tick as individuals. And uh, that, uh, I really think is what is resonating with readers it's a it's an intensely mm. personal narrative and it's the personal perspectives that are really driving it and it's it's uh it's all those little it's all those little metaphysical uh, mm. points in the story that I think really bring the reader in
1: yeah that's that's why I said you uh, put us right in there where you, you can like hear people like having a conversation you know right. what I mean mm-hmm. like yeah, you, right. yeah do, do you think you could write it like especially this one skybreak as a as a screenplay,
2: you know the thought has crossed my mind.
1: It has, think, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and
2: and I I might do that one of these days. Um, I would love yeah, to it, see it's...
1: that. There, I think if if you had it in the screenplay format, that you might find someone who would be willing mm. to excited to produce it. I I have a, I really, I, really do. I, have I, I have a think, gut feeling on this it, book. I really yeah. do. Like Nancy and I both were like. Holy crap! Look what Mike's done again. Yeah. But this is— but this is no. I mean, really, it's it. There's, I, I, I yeah. just, I have a gut feeling on this book. I just do, and I know because you know, <laughs> if you wrote it as a screenplay and you know the the um, people that you're talking about so well, um, you could even decide who should be the actors, which would be fun.
2: It would be fun, you know, and it's. It's actually funny that you should mention that because um, I was talking to a few of my fellow historians and, you know, at one part of the conversation we were bantering like, hey, if if anything got made into a movie, Mm. who would you want to see the actors play? And then the conversation got on Skybreak that uh, Mm. that I had just finished writing and they said, so, Mike, who would you want to see in Mm. a movie or maybe... Mm -hmm even a miniseries if this ever got made into a film and I was like, well okay uh, right offhand I can think of a few people uh, and for some reason and I, I, I still don't know why exactly this stuck with me but uh, if you're familiar with a show on the Disney uh, show on the Disney channel called Dog with a Blog there was an actor who was in that series his name was Blake Michael and Michael. and <laughs> for some reason I can so picture Blake Michael, being the perfect fit for Cesar Rodriguez, I'm gonna because have to check has, him up. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: I'm gonna look yeah. him up. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look him C. up. Yeah, no, and see. <laughs> this is well. No, I think it would. I I would really encourage you to write this as a screenplay.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, because you, you know? know, I was yeah. thinking about the beginning of this. You know, when Top Gun came out. Going back to that, remember, mm-hmm. like, and then I think it was Days of Thunder was the the car one, but when Top Gun came out. That's when we started to understand more about mm-hmm. today's fighter jets and you know what I mean, that whole narrative, the mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of that. You know, this is a true story, you know. <laughs> well, so, you know what I mean? It just kind of reminded me of that and and also that time frame, you know, of mm. I can't remember how old I was when Top Gun came out i swear rocky came out at the same time i'm not gonna say <laughs> i don't know I, I should say how young but but yeah, yeah. oh man. i think i think yeah write it as a screenplay yeah yeah you did so well on the personalities of, mm-hmm. of the man that you know i just feel like mm-hmm. i already feel like it's a it's a movie and you'd have but to have I, an I epic soundtrack I mean, come on, yeah. the music yeah, for this, but... it would be awesome. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Call me on that part. <laughs> I got the musicians. <laughs> I got you I the got, got like, library. <laughs> I got the library, <laughs> got the yeah, library really, musicians that's for that. But hmm. this is awesome, I, Mike. Congratulations. Yeah. We'll have to it's chat really again great. soon. We've got um, more Park stuff to connect with you on. And one thing we're finding, and, and this is a new thing that's kind of, I really want to do something on rest areas across America, but this is a little different. (laughs) There have been a a number of rest areas and I, I'm going to have to look up the history of how and why, but I think because, well, a lot of them were used in world war II for tanks Mm -hmm. and lookout points. And then I think because they leveled it, I don't know if Mm -hmm. it was because of what was going on back then, they made them into rest areas or if they were, I don't know what, how, who came first but a lot of rest areas have military history of being Mm -hmm. like a watchdog area or a staging Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And so that's a new thing. So let's, let's look at rest areas and and tanks. I know you like tanks, but Uh (laughs) so I mean, it was like, well, go somewhere. We're like, look, there's another monument to, you know, like you're saying before Mr. Romano, that's kind of what got me. It was like, we'll go. There are so many highways dedicated to a veteran. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, who's that? Like, get yep. how more has his own highway. I want to know yeah. who, who the person is. And how many times mm-hmm. do we just Oh, that's that road. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I got stuck twice. on Pershing yeah. the other day. I don't know yeah. what happened. But Pershing, <laughs> I dude, he was pretty cool. We need to do mm-hmm. something on Pershing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a highway too. But anyway, we will talk soon. Everyone, MikeGuardia.com is the website mm-hmm. to go to. And the book, again, is Skybreak, the 58th Fighter Squadron in Desert Storm. And keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. We are Monday through Fridays. We love to do our Military Monday shows too. So just go to BigBlendRadio.com to keep up with us. And all the social media links are there. Thanks so much, Military Mike. Thanks, Mike.
2: Alrighty, Thank you, ladies. Mm-hmm. Always a pleasure to be on the show.